Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you had a good weekend, and hard to believe we're already at the start of another week, being the start of the third full week in 2021. Well, my wife and I uh, yesterday went to Colonial Williamsburg for the day. I'm sure many of you are wondering, gosh, you know, how many times, uh, Kirk, have you and your wife been to Colonial Williamsburg since you've been since you all been married? We've been a lot of times, and as I've said before, no matter how t- how many times we go to uh, Colonial Williamsburg, we always learn something new. But yesterday, um, we did something different. We went to the uh, art museums. Um, they are uh, co-joined together, being the DeWitt um, Art Museum as, w- as well as the Abbey Aldrich uh, Rockefeller um, Center. If for those of you who have been to Colonial Williamsburg before, that's great. I would recommend going again. But I would also recommend, if you haven't done so, to visit the um, art museums, being the DeWitt Museum, uh, along with the Abbey Aldrich um, Rockefeller um, Museum. I would definitely uh, say that you need to spend a whole day doing that, or at least two days at most. But my wife and I were able to get it all in in one day uh, yesterday. And uh, very well done, uh, numerous exhibits, uh, but that's what I, uh, what we enjoy, uh, considering that it is history. But uh, one thing that I should um, point out, uh, not just so much about Williamsburg, but about history in general, and I think this applies to all history, but um, Williamsburg, the recreation of colonial Williamsburg as we know it today just didn't happen overnight. It actually happened around the turn of the 20th century, uh, during the first decade, when uh, the rector, being W.A.R. Goodwin, otherwise known as uh, William Goodwin, he was the uh, rector at uh, St. John's uh, Bruton Parish Church. And that church, uh, back in 2015, turned uh, 300 years old. Ironically, uh, the present-day church that that is there uh, sits on top of other um church foundations along the uh, site. So in other words, the church that's still there has not been the same church that has been around now for 306 years, uh, structure-wise. But Bill Goodwin, or I should say William Goodwin, um, couldn't help but noticing, as I've been reading in my uh, current uh, Williamsburg magazine, that um, as he was uh, strolling along the um, pathways, he saw buildings that have been dilapidated. We're not just talking buildings like, say, a warehouse or an abandoned shoe store kind of thing. We're talking about buildings that had stood the test of time. Some of these buildings had been around since colonial days. Others replaced, say, existing uh, or one-time colonial buildings with um, new foundations that, sadly, over time went into disarray. So Bill Goodwin knew that if nothing were done over time to save these buildings, that Williamsburg itself would fade into history. In other words, it would become a forgotten piece of history that uh, future generations would just simply not learn, be able to learn about. So, who does Bill Goodwin turn to? He eventually turns to a fellow named John D. Rockefeller. Of course, uh, the Rockefellers are a very, very prominent uh, American family. Um, 
most notably, um, the Rockefellers made their fortune in the oil industry. Now, I can tell you this much, there have been plenty of John D. Rockefellers out there. But in 1924, John D. Rockefeller III, I believe it was John D. Rockefeller III or the first. Like I said a moment ago, there have been too many of them. So <laughs> the good news is that at least I know it's John D. Rockefeller. But in 1924, he and uh, Bill Goodwin um, proposed a plan to go about restoring Colonial Williamsburg. And because of John D. Rockefeller's um, charitable uh, philanthropic uh, works, we owe him and Reverend Goodwin a huge debt of gratitude for their efforts in saving Colonial Williamsburg, because if it hadn't been for them, I'm not sure who could have stepped up to the plate and done it. And for all we know, Williamsburg would have uh, fallen into a total obscurity. I think we could say a lot about other unique historic places, too, uh, most notably uh, Monticello, uh, given that's the home of my uh, favorite Virginian, uh, being Thomas Jefferson, when Jefferson died in 1826, um, Monticello um, sadly was sold out of the family in large parts because uh, Jefferson was in so much debt. But sadly, uh, we didn't realize uh, for a long period of time that an outside family who had no connections to the Jeffersons were the ones that actually saved Monticello, the Levies, uh, most notably Uriah Levy. There is a, a good book that I read a few years back on called uh, Saving Monticello um, about the Levy family um, and how they uh, came to the rescue in um, around 1834, about eight years after his death, or that is of Thomas Jefferson's death, and, back, and actually owned Monticello for about 90 years until, they, until uh, Uriah Levy's um, nephew, Jefferson Monroe Levy, in the end, uh, turned it over to the Monticello um, Historical um, or uh, Society, or perhaps I should say the Thomas Jefferson Foundation. Uh, so bot the bottom line is, in this case with Monticello, had it not been for this um, family, uh, Jewish family, that, um, that rescued Monticello and owned the property for 90 years, Monticello, too, could have met a sad demise to where it would have um, ultimately crumbled to the ground. And I could go on with other places too, but um, but it's just something we must um, be reminded of with our history. And that's where, um, especially in the state of Virginia at the start of the 20th century, where um, the Antiquities Acts came into play, where people came together and um, saved homes from um, being destroyed, or not just so much destroyed, but from being forgotten. And the same could be said real quick for Thomas Jefferson's uh, getaway retreat, uh, Poplar Forest in Bedford County. That home remained in private hands up until the late 1970s, and then it stood dormant for a few years to where nobody was willing to buy the property, and there were talks of demolishing it just because there was no interest. But thank heavens the, the people of Bedford County came to the rescue and raised enough money and got enough petition signatures to keep the property there to where it still stands today and is open to the public for uh, tours. And my wife and I have been there before, and it's uh, very well worth uh, visiting. So, you know, we, we tend to have this assumption that 
historic homes just you know stay there forever, that they've never had to endure a hardship. But in fact, uh, reality is that historic homes and historic places do endure the best of times and the worst of times. But when it's all said and done with, it also comes down to people, people who care enough about history to say, hey, I think we as a community or we as or we as a greater um, society need to band together to preserve a home, not just for its present state, but for the future, so that future generations can appreciate not just the people who lived in the homes, but what the home itself stood for. So that's why I um, am very passionate about history. Um, I do have to remind myself, and as I've told you all my listeners, that while, yes, it's not always pretty and glamorous, there are sad things about history, but it must not be forgotten. We must find ways to preserve the past so that it stays afloat in the present and so that we uh, carry it forward in the future with a better uh, appreciation of whatever struggles there were in the past that have helped, say, smooth things better in the present. So So when you go to Colonial Williamsburg, they always say where the past and present come alive. And how true, you're learning about the past but you're also learning about how the past affects the present and then how it will affect where you go in the future with the information you've obtained. So, that's my uh, brief 101 history um, lesson for you all tonight in terms of appreciating um, history no matter how many times you've been to a place of historic significance. But here we are uh, discussing, once again, Wedding of the Waters, the Erie Canal, and the Making of a Great Nation by Peter L. Bernstein. We're now uh, discussing part three. I'm sure some of you all are wondering now, how many more parts are, are there after you get done with part three, Kirk? Well, maybe I should keep it as a surprise. I, I can tell you this much. it won't. There won't be ten parts. But if I, gave, if I gave you all the exact number now, I'm sure some of you would think now, how many more podcast sessions will it take to complete the whole thing? It's not about how many um, sessions or how many, it, it's not about any of that. It's really about what I can share with you all, my listeners. And this way you take that information and apply it in your own setting, but also how you can uh, spread the information to others out there who would like to know more about what I'm sharing with you all. So, part three of The Wedding of the Waters, we will be discussing what's called the creation. Well, what do you all think the creation means? Well, when I think of the creation, how about actually starting work on the canal itself? So here we go, folks. We are really, really moving things up even more. So our lead-off bonus question tonight is going to be the following. In order to maintain general efficiency behind constructing the Erie Canal, how would commissioners go about modifying their overall duties? Well, how about this? Commissioners DeWitt Clinton, Stephen Van Rensselaer, Joseph Ellicott, to a Mr. Holly and Mr. Young, all agreed to transfer financial responsibilities over to a new body called the Commissioners of the Canal Fund. 
I think this was a smart move. You know, it's one thing to be a commissioner, but at the same time, commissioners alone can have enormous responsibilities. Sometimes they can have too many to where it can be so overwhelming that they might lose sight of what the primary focus is. So, there, um, there are going to be a handful of uh, people who will be on this canal fund. It will be comprised of the state comptroller, a treasurer, the secretary of state, an attorney general, surveyor general, as well as the lieutenant governor, who is just below the governor. So, you know, it's one thing to have power, but if you have too much power, can that be dangerous? Yes. If commissioners were assigned, if, if the commissioners had been assigned these tasks, or not so much tasks, but the tasks that the, um, that the uh, say, the treasurer, the state comptroller, for example, would be handling, could that be considered in the eyes of some people abuse of power? Sure. Because if they're not equipped to, um, if they're not, say, how do I say it, not so much equipped, but, um, but if their specialty is not in uh, finance, for example, then why would you want to give someone a position with little uh, lack of uh, financial expertise? Yeah, you know, I, I would definitely want someone with financial expertise in the proper um, title role. And this will help diversify and make others feel welcome to where the state of New York in general is having broad participation from its own uh, government. And that power is not placed in the hands of a few, but, it's, but the power itself is placed in a broader spectrum of political figures who will um, oversee that the end results will have huge um, implications for all the right reasons in terms of getting goods transported, not just east to west, but from west to east on the Erie Canal. So our uh, first general question is the following. Which group of people in the commissioner's eyes were better suited for canal digging? Well, let me ask you this. When we say which group of people, are we talking about, say, um, hiring outside um, sources, that is, uh, third-party people? For all we know, who might not even hail from New York State? Or would it be better to hire locals? The answer is the following. Locals. Why the locals? Well, they're familiar with their native terrain. But also know how and where to recruit workforce teams. So if you've been part of that um, migration movement that, say, came from New York City to New York State, or may have been immigrants that came from um, somewhere over in Europe and now are living in what we now know as Syracuse or um, Albany or, um, or in the towns outside of Albany and Syracuse and all the way to Buffalo, then yes, you want those people to have um, a sense of connection. You want them to know that, okay, we entrust you all to be able to help us, meaning the commissioners, and the um, canal commissioners of the canal fund, or the commissioners of the canal fund, you want them to know that, hey, we, we care about this project just as much as you all do. So by having the locals participate in the project, it will give them a better sense of identity. It will give them a better sense of um, 
feeling knowing that, hey, they haven't been forgotten because, you know, we've spent the last um, 25 to 30 years surveying all of this. I mean, the surveying had been done even well before the 25 to 30 year range in the post-revolutionary war era. But we're now finally at the stage where the New York State Legislature has given us the green light. We can't go backwards anymore and say, oh, well, I don't like this or I don't like that. You either do this project or you don't. But, yes, to have the locals be a part of this will give them a better identity. It will give them a better sense of feeling. It'll make them proud to be a, a New Yorker. I should also point out that there were more small contracts doled out for covering short distances. How so? Well, let's say you live on the outskirts of present-day Syracuse in um, Utica or Rome. You're going to assign um, a contract to those living in the area who are going to partake in the project. But at the same time, you're going to keep them in their area. In other words... You know, don't have, don't expect them to go further east or further west if they don't know the terrain, because you don't want there to be any what do you call it issues, what do you call it conflict or regional issues. You want to keep it within the confines as much as possible. So this way, um, work, the work itself can be done. And it will lead. It will also enable commissioners to prevent unforeseen things happening, such as hiring contractors with little or no canal building experiences. So yes, you want to dole out as many small contracts as you can, but do it for those who are locals. Do it for those who live in New York State. Don't be giving out contracts to people who aren't from New York State, because. It, I'm not we don't we're not saying that people from outside the state are bad. That's not the issue. It's just that if they're not familiar with the terrain or the landscape, then who's to say that they might not be able to do the job as efficiently as a native to the state. Now, uh canal building I should note here that canal building per individual contracts were bound by gorges or uh, valleys or what's known as ravines or ravines. It's where each of the, lo lo of the locals per their town were constructing segments, as I said earlier, confined to the area. And the payments would not be made until the job was finished. And once the job, once the task was finished, then an inspection from an engineer had to be done to ensure that everything was done to par, because if it wasn't, then obviously, for one, the job didn't pass its uh, test requirements, and two, you're not going to cut corners just to say, oh, well, we'll just patch this up and hope that nothing happens. By cutting corners, guess what happens? You're putting the whole mission in danger, not just for the whole canal itself, but for one particular section. Remember, Construction of the Erie Canal, folks, is going to be in three parts. That's what I mentioned from uh, the previous podcast. Here's a good bonus question for you all. How much would labor wages per month come out to? I'll give you a hint. The number is between $10 and $15. 
The answer is twelve dollars. Twelve dollars uh, back in eighteen seventeen, which would have been a, the start of the time that the canal itself um, was actually first being uh, constructed. Twelve dollars was a lot of money for that time. It was used to um, to go towards housing. It was used for um, for food necessities. It was used for a variety of things. Of course, in 1817, um, the cost of living was not anywhere close to what we know of today. But then again, oh, somewhere probably over 90% of the um, American population was still living on, um, what do you call it, their way of life was uh, farming or agriculture. Now, of course, in the North, by 1817, you're starting to be a little bit more industrialized, but that's not to say that um, there are still plenty of farms up in New England and um, and around New York State uh, versus the South, where that's strictly all agrarian, plantation-based economy. Now, what would become the most practical form of mo of uh, motive power? You know, we the engineers and the uh, and the people building this canal have to ensure that there's got to be a proper way of getting boats not only just going downhill but uphill. Well, how about using horses and mules for towing boats via towpath, or let alone a pathway? Why are horses and mules more preferable? Well. Let me ask you, the guys, this question. What if sail power were to be used on the Erie Canal? Can wind flow, can the flow of wind move in, in opposite directions? In other words, can, say, wind going from one direction, say, from the west, going downward, can that also flow in the same um, opposite direction going uphill? No, it, it just doesn't work that way in large part because wind itself doesn't flow the same direction per multiple directions and is not suitable for boats moving against the wind. So therefore, if you have a team of horses or, and mules for towing the boats, it's, um, more, it's better suited for, um, for going uphill and um, downstream. Now, another question to think about here is this. Were scientists and engineers responsible for developing mechanisms designed to save time and energy? Well, engineers were, um, were essential to the project, but it turns out that they actually did not um, come up with any, um, or let alone design any mechanisms to save time and energy. That, believe it or not, folks, was done by the men doing the actual uh, work on the canal. They were the ones that became the inventors. Sometimes being a laborer does require you to uh, reinvent how you can um, work as a team. Not just as a, a group of certain individuals, but the team as an entire whole. So our, another bonus question to think about is the following. What famous inventor and mathematician from ancient Greek civilization is credited for devising the lever. His name is Archimedes, Archimedes, however you want to pronounce it, but that's, that's the name. Now, we all know that most levers are unbalanced seesaws, 
where a small wheel turns faster than a larger wheel. So, what did canal laborers invent that could help speed the movement of progress um, to go along to where work itself not only was sufficient, but work yielded more results? So, in other words, you've got a, a, a lot of forests. You know, it's one thing to take your axe and to chop a tree down, but I don't see how in the world you're going to be able to chop 30 trees down in one day's time for this project. So, the canal laborers would go about inventing a gadget device that was comprised of a wheel that would be tied around with cable to where it got mounted it could spin freely once the loose end of the cable was attached to the top of a tree the loose end of the cable folks being attached to the top of a tree one man alone could bring it down by turning the wheel until the cable bent the tree to where it broke free from the stump As for stump removal, Cruz devised a wheel removal system where two huge wheels joined together with a smaller wheel on, an act, on its axle. A team of horses pulled the rope tied around the inner wheel, which helped remove the stumps. Now, there are, um, there are several pictures in this book, of uh, not just of the key uh, players who um, were responsible behind um, making this uh, project a reality, but even some inventions, including this one I just mentioned a moment ago that, act, that the laborers themselves actually created. So, yes, you would like to sit back and think, well, gosh, didn't the engineers or the scientists do this and that? They did a lot of things, but sometimes even they themselves can't do everything. That's where laborers have to band together and come up with new ideas while working on the job to uh, modify uh, their situation so that um, so that when it comes to getting faster results or not just faster results but better results then uh, uh, their uh, deadlines or deadline I should say for for getting um, part of the project completed goes uh, smoother than say having to spend weeks on weeks on end cutting down trees with a traditional axe. Now as 1817 comes to an end, how many miles of canal had become fully operable? I'll give you a hint, the number's between 10 and 20. The answer is 15. 15 miles, folks, of canal has become fully operable by this time. We're moving on up. Uh, we're not moving up to the east side, <laughs> not like the television show, The Jeffersons, but, uh, but it is fair to say that we are moving on up in the sense that, hey, 15 miles can, is now become operable. I think it's safe to say that many of us, when we learn about the Erie Canal, we think that it took years in and years in and years out to, um, to finally get everything done to where the whole canal itself became operable, but while, while that is true, what we do fail to realize is that even before 
1825 arrives when the canal itself is finally completed from point A to point B, that is uh, the full 363 mile journey leg, before that, that whole um, grand completion is done in years before 1825, there are uh, different sections of the canal open, but it's not the full scale. So another bonus question to think about is the following. Uh, given land clearing and canal excavation had progressed well, what was still lacking behind? Well, we all know that uh, boats have to move by water, and with this canal, we need, their, we need the water to be artificial. In other words, it's got to be flowing in the same... We're going two directions, but it's got to be flowing on the same uh, playing field. We can't have um, issues where, you know, we're going downstream fine and then going uphill against the current, posing as an even bigger problem. So the bigger issue at stake that was lacking is waterproof material. And it's, we're not just talking waterproof material for one season, folks. We're talking about... It, this material being durable for all seasons. Sealing spaces between arranged stones for excavation, locks, and then there are the culverts, or what I should say, the tunnels that carrying, carrying a stream or open drain under a navigable road. And then you have the aqueducts. So at the time that the canal was being constructed, what would have been, um, what would have been presently available quicklime. I don't really know a whole lot about quicklime, but what I do know is that it was un it, it was um, it was unpredictable in the sense that it was unstable and it broke down under all forms of pressure. So no matter how much quicklime you could have applied to um, something, the chances of it lasting permanently are very slim. So, the bigger question now is, what can we do, or should I say the engineers and the people at work, what can they do to modify this problem in order for it, in order for the canal to have any um, success in terms of not um, experiencing internal uh, structural um, failures? So what was taking place at a little village 20 miles of Syracuse in what is known as uh, Chittenango, which is um, right around, um, it's in what's called uh, southern New York, uh, near um, Horseheads, Elmira, in that area. But um, 20 miles east of Syracuse, you have a, a little village called Chittenango, and a scientific experiment was con being conducted, uh, none other by scientist Andrew Bartow, whom was studying the effects of local limestone. So engineer Canvas White and another fellow surveyor named Benjamin Wright go to uh, Chittenango and meet with Dr. Bartow to learn more about Dr. Bartow's um, experimentation of, with local limestone. Dr. Bartow shows both of these gentlemen a ball of cement, once mixed and deposited into a pail of water. Well, I take it back, he 
shows them a ball of cement, but then once it gets mixed and deposited into the pail of water, overnight it will still retain its composition, meaning its um, its appearance, its um, its texture, its uh, shape, basically. And so, as a result of this, the ball itself remained uniform to where it could be rolled across a room without breaking down, without uh, splitting in two. This this is big because lime the uh, what do you call it? Quick lime can't do this. It could be that maybe. Canvas White and Benjamin Wright have finally found the golden ticket as to what is going to be done um, for um, internal um, safety um, for, for internal safety measures on how to uh, keep um, the canal itself safe. So this ball of cement was hard and solid as a rock. Canvas White decided, though, to conduct more experiments, which I think was smart, to where in the end, the mixture was deemed waterproof. If it's not waterproof, then the um, canal's viability can be jeopardized. So this experimental discovery was so grand that a factory was built to produce cement material of $3.50 for a barrel of five bushels of cement. 500,000, folks, is the number of cement bushels which would be used to build the Erie Canal, or to build the Erie Canal, from the first, um, what do you call it, the first um, beginnings in 1817 all the way to the end in uh, October of 1825. Well, had it not been for this uh, this uh, discovery with the cement, with uh, limestone in the area, I'm not sure what could have uh, taken its place. But it was the right experimental discovery at the right time. So here's another bonus question to think about. What surprise came in 1818 that temporarily shut down canal work? This isn't a good answer. But it is something that should be pointed out because when I think of um, what do you call it, construction coming to a halt on a big project, say like the canal, I think of uh, a time at the beginning of the 20th century where another canal was being constructed and it, uh, and it had some temporary setbacks that were just as similar as to what happened at the start of the 19th century with the Erie Canal. That surprise came in the form of mosquitoes entering the fray. Given that a hot summer had taken place in 1818 in, in up north, the hot summer brought mosquitoes into the fray where thousands of men came down with fevers. And as for Governor DeWitt Clinton's family, his wife um, could not escape the fever either. She tried. She went back to Long Island thinking that she would be immune from the mosquito presence, and she wasn't. She couldn't escape the presence of the mosquitoes to where, sadly, she herself died on July 30th of 1818 
at age 42. Usually when I think of mosquitoes, I think of them, you know, being in tropical areas around the world where, um, you know, malaria sets in, uh, yellow fever. I, I think of, yeah, mosquitoes in those tropical areas, but actually mosquitoes can be anywhere. And that sometimes is not a good thing either. Now, in the late summer of 1819, the middle section of the Erie Canal was 95% complete. And in October uh, 22nd of that year, the sliding gates opened to where water filled ditch over to where water filled a ditch over 16 miles from Rome to Utica, and this is in the middle section. And we're talking about just on the outskirts of Syracuse, but this is very big, folks, to have water filled um, filling a ditch over 16 miles. And knowing that this um, water, yes, it's artificial, but it's water that's going to actually stay there. It's not going to go away. And a boat named in honor of Benjamin Wright will be the first to travel the 16-mile journey from Rome to Utica, being the chief engineer. This was a, a very, very uh, big step. Okay, given that we've already started building the canal, now we need to show people that a boat can actually move on this canal as to what's been completed. Now, how many hours do you think um, the first um, boat ride along the 16-mile stretch from Rome to Utica took? Four hours. Now, remember, folks, the speed is only about four miles per hour. We don't have keys to start the boats. Keys aren't going to come around till much longer, uh, so we haven't gotten to that sophisticated technology yet. But going at four miles per hour was the standard speed on the Erie Canal. But this is a huge step in the right direction towards um, towards a variety of things. You know, getting say goods from Rome to Utica and vice versa, and let alone just transporting people. After all, weren't the roads not the greatest? Yes. Should the roads be improved? Yes. But when we're talking about transporting goods from east to west or west to east, we need a better um, system. We need a better system in play where it's going to cost less to transport the goods by water versus by land. Even Robert Fulton himself was a strong uh, advocate behind that. And I'm sure many of you all remember from a previous podcast the whole breakdown, uh, cost breakdown scenario of how much uh, it would, how much money we would save by transporting goods via water versus by road, and also how much more you could ship by water versus by land. So here's our, uh, our last bonus question for this particular session. While big steps in canal successes were taking root within New York State, was the rest of the U.S. celebrating? No, it wasn't that they didn't care. On the other hand, most southern Southerners in southern states aren't interested in canals, in large part because it, it would be a total, what do you call it, transformation of how their current system or current economical system is functioning, being that of an agrarian plantation-based. But the nation as a whole is going to be experiencing its first financial panic, 
where high unemployment, high interest rates, bank failures, to, collapse, to collapses in the real estate market, to values sending many in a frenzy, or I should say a collapse in real estate values sending, that would send many in a frenzy. New York, though, while they might feel, the state itself might feel some impact of what's going on, New York, believe it or not, folks, as a whole, didn't hurt like everyone else. How so? Well, you've got the Erie Canal project going on. And it's not just a project that's benefiting those who are advocating it, being um, the commissioners. We've got the general public involved. That creates jobs right there. And because those jobs are being created, and they've already been created, um, people aren't having to uh, worry about whether or not their um, real estate values are plummeting. They're not having to worry about high interest rates. Um, think about this, folks. Had the opposite happened, setbacks would have been greater in large part because we know right now, and it still stays this way, that the Erie Canal project is being funded by the state, not the federal government. So had the federal government been footing the bill altogether for this project, it would have come to a halt. People's jobs would have been lost. Um, everything would have gone down the toilet. So it's going to take a while for this, um, what do you call it, financial panic to, um, to cease to where um, people can get back on their feet and start working again. Now, of course, I know I did mention how James Monroe's presidency, and of course James Monroe's president at this time, it was considered to be the era of good feelings. And that's more so in part because we're not at war with anyone. James Monroe is a big supporter of the Erie Canal. But it is safe to say, even in the era of good feelings, there still are um, hardships, like this one, the financial panic. But we're going to talk more about the financial panic in the next podcast session, and we're also going to be talking about what's called the booms and the busts and the bonds. So in other words, when we think of booms, we think of successes, the busts, we think of not so good, but all in all, when it's said and done with, New Yorkers are still going to come through on top. They're going to you know, continue to experience some knockdowns, but they'll get back up and do something about it. And that's what, has, that's what we have learned, is that through sheer determination and resiliency, that this uh, reality now is actually coming to life, or this grand vision has, is, a, is in fact a, a true reality that we finally got the green light to go forward with this project and make it um, something so great to where um, technology, the technology for this time in terms of how we transport goods, not just to the ports along the Atlantic Ocean, but how we get them further inland will enable um, the nation to have better commercial way systems that will um, link goods to places never seen before. Well, I've enjoyed my time being on the air with you all, but then again, I've always enjoyed my time, and I thoroughly do enjoy um, not just learning about the, about history that interests me, but also being able to share it with you all, my listeners. And for those of you who have not been to some of the places where my wife and I have visited, um, I strongly recommend going. 
Uh, definitely make the most of those places, whether it's uh, places in New York State like the Finger Lakes, Thousand Islands, Niagara Falls, Adirondacks, to places in Virginia like the Historic Triangle, to Thomas Jefferson's Monticello. Um, definitely visit those places because they, um, they all tell a story. Yes, sometimes the stories may not be pleasant, but you know what? If you can learn from the past and, and get a better understanding of where you are in the present, then do whatever it, there is to educate yourself about it. Do whatever it takes to uh, be a good steward of history because um, this is something, you know, history itself is something we can't take for granted. And, it, and if you have a real passion for it, keep it up. And if you know of people out there who are developing a passion in the, in history, keep telling them to um, con, keep telling them to stay on the right track. Well, thank you for your time, and I look forward to being back on the air again here soon. Uh, take care.